Hey gang, it's Harold. I'm podcasting to you from the bunker. In the interest of distracting myself and my gaming friends, I'm reaching out to some interesting people to ask them what they're doing game-wise. With such a big time dividend, I want to hear what they're playing, designing, or thinking about. No CNN, no CNBC, just games. My production obsession will have to be put on hold as I'm most interested in communicating with you rapidly and with some interesting content. This podcast documents a discussion I had with the inventor of the Pantzuka, designer Brian Train. Hello, Brian. Hello, Howard. How are you, sir? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Hey, I uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk. And uh, this is our second start. Of course, I screwed up the recording the first time, but you were kind enough to allow me to start again. Thank you very much. Oh, it's no problem. Um, but uh, first world problems, I guess, huh? Yes. I will. Uh, I'd like to set a few ground rules for our discussion, if you don't mind. Sa. So, so the the ground rules are. And I'm not sure what you just said, but I think that means continue with the ground rules. Um, so first of all, no discussion of medicine or medical conditions. Secondly, no discussion of politics. And third, no discussion of financial markets. How's that? Understood. Do my best. Stop. <laughs> now, we went th- we've been through five minutes of recording already. And I'll point out that you violated each of those rules instantly. Do you you intend to do that again? Oh, I'm incorrigible. (laughs) No, Howard, I I, I will do my best. Oh, dear. I just realized I've called you Howard twice. (laughs) I I don't mind, Brian. I've been called such terrible things in my life that Howard is a a nice place for me to hide. No, it's just I have have a friend, Howard, um, who's uh, he he lives up in Smithers, uh, which is a town in the frozen north of British Columbia. Not that far north, but far enough north. And uh, he's a gamer. And uh, we always, he he comes down to Victoria for conferences every so often. He works for the Ministry of Energy and Mines. So he's like a mining safety manager. And he gets called down for a lot of conferences. But we always get together and we just babble at each other about game designs and all these kinds of things. So forgive me if, you know, I Uh, run one Howard into a Herald. Yes, no, no offense taken, uh, and I'm sure you didn't didn't mean it with offense. So, uh, well, I'll make up for it because the next time he comes down, I'll call him Howard. Howard, Howard Harold. <laughs> That's right. Well, Harold's a stuffy name to have gone through life with, um, and and I had a nickname when I was a kid that I won't share. But when I Harry? went to college, no, it was no derivative of Harold. It was a very different name. And uh, now, what I can't stand is when someone takes the liberty to call you. By your uh, by by a, a presumed nickname like Hal or Harry or Hank or something that isn't uh, Harold. So that's my that's my pet peeve. But but that's someone that does it on purpose. You just let fly a friend's name. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a silly story. When I was in uh, big corporate life, we brought an executive from IBM in to interview for a vice president job at, at our shop, and and he. Um, came in and, and this is more about the power of secretaries, but he came in and talked to my assistant about, you know, said hello. And, and, uh, he started calling her hun. Now she didn't <laughs> like to be called hun and no one should call her hun. 
uh, it was inappropriate, and I would have been really mad about that. But she knew that the thing I'd really get mad about was if he called me Hal. So mm-hmm. at the end of her dis- discussion with him, he asks if it's okay to call me Hal <laughs> instead of Harold. Uh-huh. So she said, absolutely, you go ahead and do it. <laughs> and so he came into the meeting with me, and within 10 minutes, I'd already walked him out the door because of this liberal use of Hal when he knew my name was Harold. And I found out later that it was it was her trying to get back at him. Okay. <laughs> Funny. Anyway, hey, uh, well, my Brian, name is. I'd love I'd love to hear about what uh, what you're doing. What are you thinking about? What are you playing? Um, you, you, do you have a time dividend? Are you able to work from home? And mm. what's going well, on? Well, uh, yeah, I am working from home now um, for the first time in my. 26, 27 year career in the public service, I am working from home. Um, uh, Pretty much everybody in my organization is working from home. I work for the British Columbia Ministry of Advanced Education. Um, So a lot of us are people who could just as well work from home and a lot of us us do. Um, I gotta say it's been an adjustment for me. Uh, I've been doing it for not even a week and a half now. Um, I can't say that I like it very much. Um, I think it's mostly related not to the difference in the work because we're in not super crisis mode, but uh, because of the situation, uh, the colleges and universities that my ministry is responsible for have all pivoted very quickly from going from face-to-face instruction to online. And uh, another part of my job is responsibility for cooperative education and work integrated learning. So that's internships and that kind of thing. So um, between, you know, the institutions having to shift like that and um, our internship people, you know, who are in charge of these programs trying to figure out what the situation is going to be for their students this summer and and going on further, um, it's been keeping us kind of busy. so I have a little bit of a time dividend because it saves me, you know, now that my commute is 20 feet instead of six miles, um, I have about another hour and a half, two hours in the day. But I find it filled up, you know, uh, pretty pretty much. Um, I, I, I think my main problem with working from home is I'm fortunate enough in my house that I have um, a quiet place to work from. But it's the place where I do my design work. It's where I sit and be creative. And now my workspace, you know, going to work is, you know, it's now it's kind of impinged on, on my creative space. So I have these, I have my work computer and my creative computer, you know, next to each other, PC and Mac, there you go. Um, and it's just a, it's a bit of adjustment. Um, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm home and, uh, you know, we're doing fine. My wife is uh, faculty, university faculty. So uh, everything that she was teaching has been placed online, um, but she didn't, uh, she never made much of a habit of going into her office. So this is really not much of a change for her, um, but it's nice to be together and spending a lot of time together. Um, I'm spending a little bit of my time, you know, doing a little bit more ambitious cooking. Um, I do all the cooking in our house um, and uh, just being a little bit more ambitious because a little got a little bit more time to do uh, recipes as opposed to just heating something up when I come home from work uh, at the end of the day. And uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm it, it just with the adjustment and uh, it, it took me a little bit of time to sort of like get around to thinking about uh, playing games and going back to work on some of the designs 
that uh, I've been uh, I've been working on the last little while. Well, good. I I, I uh, hope that uh, you're back around to those and advancing the ball. What um, what's what's new? Um, well, I, I I'm kind of easing back into it. I like th- this is the thing. I I design. I spend more time designing than I do playing, which is not always a good thing. But just uh, I've been wanting to play just some simpler games. You know, the last little while I want to break out like a couple of old those old SPI folio games because I've got a big collection of older stuff and, you know, just simpler stuff, nostalgia kind of things that I'd like to play. Um, one game I have been playing in the last little while um, is apropos, and I hope this doesn't break the rules, is uh, uh, it's a solitaire game that came out a few years ago from Victory Point Games called Infection, Humanity's Last Gasp. And it's uh, it's a solitaire game. It's a bit of a puzzle game where you kind of arrange uh, you know, you kind of place resources and try to obtain proteins that help to break down the molecules in a virus. Um, and if you can make it in time, then you stem the pandemic and save the world. And I haven't cracked it yet. It's not a game that can really be cracked, but it's a really absorbing puzzle game. Um, it was actually designed by a guy in Calgary, Alberta, which is uh, interesting. I don't play a lot of purpose-built solitaire games. Um, I've always preferred you know, just trying to take all sides, and it seems to work. Um, but I've been playing that and just, you know, wanting to get into some SPI games. Um, and uh, as for designs that I'm, I'm working on, currently, um, of course, uh, I've got China's War, 1937 to 41, which is the four-player uh, GMT coin system game. And I think we spent some time talking about it when I was talking with you last summer uh, at Consum World Expo. Yes, and, but I'd like to, you know, I'd like you to talk a little bit about it today, you know, sure. subject to our time. Mm-hmm. But so, so you, uh, you can go ahead and you can either outline what you're doing or talk about that. Your choice. Yeah, well, I've been. Uh, I'll just go over. Like I've been, I've been testing that one. Another one that I've been spending time on is uh, a game called Strongman, uh, which is a, re, a hefty redesign of a game that I came up with about six or seven years ago. It's a card game on uh, political, sort of like filling political vacuums uh, in a fictional Latin American country. And I have a couple of uh, sort of semi-abstract games that I've been working on intermittently the last year or so um, that are on uh, urban counterinsurgency. So uh, would you like me to talk a little bit about the China's war and talk about these in turn or? Yeah, well, absolutely. Whatever whatever you want to talk about. I, I was Noticing that uh, you know you it, China's war just dropped onto the P five hundred and you only have a uh, thousand orders, so <laughs> seems seem to be doing quite well there. Um, and and it's an it's an uh, not an obscure topic, but a topic where I couldn't list a large number of games related to. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I mean, once it uh, like I showed it to Gene. Uh, Billingsley last summer, and he, <clears throat> you know, he was quite quite pleased with it. So we put it on uh, P five hundred, and it made uh, the five hundred point pretty briskly. Um, my understanding is there's a couple of hundred people uh, who have who apparently have some kind of standing order with uh, GMT, sort of like you know, put me down for anything coin system, you know, and so that's uh, usually like a couple hundred pre-orders already. So those are people who are really, really into the system and will buy, you know, pretty much anything that um, 
that that has a, that uses the system, and uh, it, it went pretty briskly after that. Um, now that was seven months ago, and uh, so it has kind of tapered off. Uh, but now it's standing at just over a thousand, um, which is pretty good. You know, um, it, it's going to be a while before this actually um, hits the market. So it's I don't think there's any great hurry, you know, to, to get this out. Um, Jason Carr is the developer and uh, he's finishing up. Uh, I think it's one of Mitchell Land's next war projects right now. And when he's done and free and clear of that, then we'll uh, get a, a vassal module together. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, get get some play testers on it, and we'll go through uh, you know the rest of the development cycle. Um, as far as I'm concerned, um, the, I'm very satisfied with the mechanics uh, in the game, and uh, they seem to me to be pretty sound. Uh, I like the asymmetries that I put in uh, among the different the four different factions. Um, probably some of the events in the event card deck. Uh, need to be maybe refined a little bit, uh, you know, language needs to be corrected, um, and the ultimate effects of some cards, excuse me, I think needs to need to be assessed. But, you know, that's part of the normal development of a coin system game, and it's where a lot of the grunt work takes place. I mean, there's to me, there's two really important stages in making a, a, a GMT coin system game. The first is when you sit down and you uh, just lay down sort of like the, the ground parameters uh, of the system itself. So you conceptualize, you know, what are your factions? What do the factions want? How are they different from each other? Um, you know, what are their different means and motives and opportunities? You know, put it that way. And once you've got that straight in your mind, um, then you can proceed with, the res with fleshing in the rest of the game. Um, and as I said, um, there's an awful lot of research involved, research and reading and testing and refinement that goes into the event card deck. Uh, and uh, that's um, a lot of grunt work. And um, that's, that's the other important part. The, the good thing about these coin system games, or the ones that GMT has published so far, is, and we've discussed this before, and you know this full well yourself from working on Liberty of Death, is the history the very careful history that's worked into each and every event card. Now, keep in mind, of course, you know, we all have to keep in mind that some people who play these games really don't care too much about the history itself. But for a lot of people, and I'd like to say most players, um, it's the history that's put into each game, uh, into, into each event card and into the playbook and the reading lists and all these kinds of things um, that really makes, helps to make the game come alive for people as opposed to people who are just, you know, maybe a little bit more interested in just playing a game that has a bit of a tinge of history to it. So um, that's that's China's War. So I anticipate... So, so Brian, if you don't, oh, yeah, if you don't mind, on, on China's War, can we talk a little bit about the factions? Sure, certainly. Um, so there are four factions in the game. Um, there's uh, Japan, uh, and uh, there's, there's Japan... The, uh, the KMT Central, uh, which is uh, like Chiang Kai-shek and the, the factions, the Chinese factions that went together to form the Chinese Republican government. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which is led by Mao Zedong. And the what I call the warlords. Now, the warlords are, they're kind of a, a survival of the actual warlords um, that Chiang uh, Kai-shek uh, uh, 
that he defeated uh, in the nineteen in the late nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. So they're still kind of regional powers, but they're 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 all part of the Republican government, and their uh, their military forces are part of the of of, of the Republican Chinese army, but they had a lot of regional autonomy, a lot of uh, localized political authority, and there was uh, the intricate dance of factions within factions that went on throughout the war, uh, before, during, and after the war. Um, so I felt justified in, in dividing uh, the Chinese resistance into three parts like that because there was the central government uh, and then there's the communists who you know had a united front with the uh, with the uh, Chiang Kai-shek government um, but they were both of them were just kind of biding their time because they knew that they would resume the civil war um, um, you know was after the Japanese had been defeated and then there were the regional powers uh, you know which I call the warlords and they're all important um, there are important differences in what they want um, the Japanese victory condition I'm just going by memory here I haven't uh, played the, uh, I haven't looked at the game recently um, but the um, the Japanese are all about controlling the lines of communication uh, within China um, so I, I an important conceptual jump that a lot of people need to make when they're sitting down to play a GMT coin system game is a lot of them look at a, a map uh, for a game that has lines of communication, you know, river lines, highways, what have you. Um, and they just see it as a border between two provinces or spaces or something like that. So they play the game, but they play it like it's, it's an area movement game. And depending on the game, the light has to come on at a certain point and they have to start exploiting the lines of communication, not as borders, but as actual lines of communication and exploiting the power that lies within those. And then it becomes the, a, a different kind of game for them. In this game, you have to jump onto that, or the Japanese player at least has to jump onto that uh, at the very beginning, because his victory is predicated on dominating as much as possible of the lines of communication within China, uh, and also on keeping the commitment score up, uh, which is a sort of an abstracted measure of how interested Tokyo is in uh, maintaining uh, and supporting the war in China, as opposed to an effort to defend or possibly attack the Soviet Union in the north, which is the strike north strategy, or going south, uh, the strike south strategy, which is what they went for eventually. But a lot of Japanese uh, generals by even 1939 had uh, come to the conclusion that the war in China was had been a mistake and was turning into a big quagmire. So that's the commitment score for them. Now, the Japanese um, emphasis on the line of communication uh, domination is tied into the actual nature of the Japanese occupation, because in history, the Japanese had what they called a dot and line uh, occupation. So they were really only interested in seizing the cities themselves and whatever kind of manufacturing and industrial capacity they had, um, and the riverways or the railways uh, that connected them. If you lived more than a few miles from a large Japan, a Chinese town or uh, more than a few miles from a major railway, uh, as a Chinese person, you probably wouldn't see very much of the Japanese during the war. 
because they only had enough manpower to occupy and dominate that area. There were times, of course, when the Japanese would go on uh, sweeps through the countryside, and you can do that in this game. But uh, what they're looking for in the game is definitely uh, just looking to uh, seize you know, the lines of communication and maintain them. And uh, so that's them. And then for this, uh, the, the KMT, um, they're the nationalists rather, um, the, uh, they're, what they're looking for is they're looking for support uh, among the population. Uh, and um, uh, there's a, a, a patronage mechanism that's it's somewhat reminiscent of the uh, Afghan government in a distant plane. Um, and where there is support, it's not so much fervent support for uh, Chiang Kai-shek personally or the government, but just acceptance of that part of um, the, uh, that part of Chinese politics, that, that, that those particular factions allied with, with Chiang Kai-shek uh, to be the legitimate government of, um, of, of China. So they're looking to do that. Uh, and of course, uh, they're looking for patronage as well. And patronage, of course, um, some people think that that's a shorthand for just simple theft and graft. Um, and in, in part it is, but that's not deliberate. What the, in, the intention of the actual patronage metric is, is... Chang's ability in this game to uh, his ability or his sort of reserves of power and maneuverability in order to stay on top of the factions and all the different factions that went into Chinese politics. So for the nationalists, victory in the game is predicated on having a certain amount of, uh, of support or acceptance, political acceptance by that part of the Chinese population that was politically active. Now, the great majority of the Chinese population at the time uh, were rural peasants, uh, but they did have a political class, they did have a worker class, and um, they needed to, to gain support from those people uh, in order to, to, to stay on top. Um, and then the communists, they're somewhat like the Taliban in that their victory conditions are predicated on opposition, so the, uh, that, which is the flip side of support for the nationalists. So again, these are people who would rather see a communist government than a nationalist government. Um, and also on having a large uh, network of bases because the communist party realized that they would need large on infrastructure and support network for their force uh, when the war was over. So the Chinese player, or sorry, the communist Chinese communist player uh, wins by having, you know, uh, by arousing the population against the nationalist government and by having a large number of bases uh, that he'll need to rely on when the civil war resumes, uh, when the Japanese have been defeated. And then finally, the warlords. The warlords, as I said, are a little bit different. They um, rely on control of uh, population. And what they need to do is they need to have a control of a certain amount of population and have enough bases on the map that they can uh, that they're, they're com they can control more population than the nationalists have patronage. So this is one thing that's a little bit different from the other GMT uh, coin system games in that the warlords 
are are seeking to have uh, to control a larger amount of population than they, than the nationalists have of patronage. So it's a little unusual to define that in in relation to different uh, to do to do to two different factions. But what it m- mirrors in the game is that. The, the regional warlords have control, effective control of enough population in the game, uh, and they have enough bases uh, in the areas that they control, such that they can exert political as well as military control uh, of enough people that they can say effectively, "Look, we are doing a better job of." governing more of the population of China than the nationalists are. Therefore, some general in the warlord's cause would be able to unseat uh, Chiang Kai-shek and become the new leader of Republican China. Now, whether the war would continue after that or not, or whether they would surrender or come into some kind of arrangement with the Japanese where they would actually divide China into unoccupied and occupied zones, you know, those sorts of things, that doesn't really matter because that happens after someone, the warlords have won the game. But that would be the situation. The the war might continue, it might not. uh, But in any event, somebody other than Chiang Kai-shek would be in charge. It's it's very interesting. I I look forward to seeing how you treated the details, how you treat the details and, and work within the games context. We're, I have a friend that um, is is interested in the War of 1812 and, and, ex, and a relative expert on it. And we've talked about applying some of the liberty or death mechanisms to that. And some of the most interesting things that happened during that period weren't military, they were political within the borders of the United States. So it will you know, it'll be interesting to see uh, that push-pull because that mm-hmm. push-pull would be necessary uh, in a uh, in an, in a reasonable non-military, you know, not necessarily dominated by military model of uh, the War of 1812. I think that's one thing that makes this China game interesting uh, because it is not definitely not a military contest. Um, all the military, or most, much of the military power uh, rests, you know, in the hands of the Japanese. They can go wherever they want to and stomp pretty much anything they want to stomp, but they have a limited number of feet to stomp with, put it that way. And it's an interesting situation in that uh, you have, the, the general situation is that you have an invasion of China by one player and three players are opposing the, the invading player. So, you know, all three Chinese factions are on the same side against the Japanese, but what this game, where this game is interesting, is where the Chinese factions, you know, actually fight the Japanese or pretend to fight the Japanese or get other people to fight the Japanese on their behalf um, and connive, you know, to uh, reach victory, you know, uh, according to their own conditions, which I, I've just talked about. So it's you'd think it would be an interesting three against one, and in the games that I've played. You know, where everybody, all Chinese factions try to play nice and unite to defeat the Japanese, uh, they can defeat the Japanese, and they do defeat the Japanese, uh, because when the three of them get together, they can easily disrupt, you know, their occupation of the lines of communication and cause them enough casualties that commitment from Tokyo will drop. And so, yes, certainly they can defeat the Japanese if they get their act together, but there can only be one winner in the game. So if the Japanese loses... Uh, which Chinese faction is going to win. And that's the challenge. Right. Fighting for the advantage while you fight the Japanese. Yeah. 
And, and the flip side of that is true, because if nobody gets their act together, then the Japanese simply romp to victory on top of them. Right. So there has to, there's, there's a tension there, uh, which I think will be, uh, should be, you know, interesting among the players. Sounds great. Looking forward to, to trying it yeah. out. So, so that's, um, that's ahead, number please. one. <laughs> yes. And uh, there's like three or four other things that I've been working on as well, but you know, so subject to subject to time, let's, let's pick a, let's pick another highlight and, and uh, let us know how, how that's going and how it works. Okay. Well, the second thing that's been occupying my attention is a game called Strongman. Um, about seven years ago, I designed a game. Uh, it was a, it was a political military card game on a very thinly disguised post Chavez Venezuela. Now this is 2013, so Hugo Chavez wasn't post Chavez yet. Uh, he was still alive, um, but whether he le would leave office by death or by a coup or something like that, uh, I thought it was just a matter of time. So I thought it would be interesting, you know, to have a game uh, that would be a, a card game, uh, mostly cards, um, where the players you could have, a, you know, of course it's meant to be a multiplayer game. Uh, and you'd have all these different factions that would be competing for power in the sudden absence of a charismatic leader. Uh, and so the stresses within the country kind of come to the fore once this charismatic leader, excuse me, is gone. And so how it works in the game is the main, the main dynamic in the game is there's a tension between the different players trying to build up. Uh, power bases of of groups, you know, groups uh, uh, that that uh, generated particular types of resources and that kind of thing. So they're trying to build up large individual power bases, but at the same time, everybody has to cooperate in order to devote resources towards defeating the different social and economic and political crises that are being spit out of the deck of cards. As they try to build their power bases, there's these continual challenges as these crises come out. And so what they do is they're, they're motivated to do that because the, the, the more crises there are going, the, the greater drag it's going to be on the game and punish everyone. And also because it's a source of short-term victory points for them to uh, help to resolve crises. So there's short-term reward, but there's also a long-term reward for having a large power base. So there's that tension between competition and cooperation. And so this was something that I put together in 2013, and I just would take it around. I would test it with groups, um, you know, from time to time. And it seemed to be okay. And in 2016, I put it out for free print and play, and it's still on my website uh, for anybody who wants to download it. Um, what's your, uh, what's your, give me a, what's your website? Sure thing. It's uh, brtrain.wordpress.com. Com. Yeah. And uh, I can email you a link too if you want. So it's, uh, so I, I had been working on that. And um, I, I think you and I had discussed before about my experience in working on Knights of Fire, which is that Budapest 1956 game that I put together with David Turtsey. Yeah. So David and I spent a lot of uh, 2017 uh, working on Knights of Fire, which is a sequel to David's game Days of Fire about the uh, 1956 Hungarian Revolution. So uh, I learned a lot about 
uh, game design from David because David is more of a Euro gamer than a war gamer, but he's played enough war games that he kind of speaks the dialect. And we, I, I think we collaborated uh, really well together. So once Knights of Fire was done, um, David wanted to do something else uh, together. And I, I put this idea forward. And so intermittently, David and I have been working on it for the last uh, year and a half or so. Uh, and with David's help, uh, we've got, we've, we've taken this game into uh, a really different level of complexity and, uh, and, and, and different, different methods, different motivations. Uh, there's a lot more sort of individuality, I guess you'd call it in the factions that you can create. Um, so it's become a really drastic revision of this game. Uh, this original Caudillo game that I, I mentioned. So we gave it a new title, Strongman. And that's um, something that I've been working on uh, the last while. And uh, it's an interesting design. Um, it's a multiplayer game, uh, still basically a multiplayer game. And you still have the basic tension of competition and cooperation. Uh, but there's been an awful lot more layered onto that, not to make it more complicated, uh, but just to make it more, uh, give it some more depth and, and variety in play. So I have some high hopes for that. And the there are two other. Uh, it's it's no longer um, and Brian, it's no longer thinly veiled, or it's 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 not specific to Venezuela still, right? Oh, it never was specific to Venezuela. I mean, it took place in the uh, fictional city of of Maracas, in the <laughs> fictional country of Virtualia, right. and uh, the the. The leader who had just departed from power is uh, Jesus Chavez, <laughs> and and that's... that is Jesus shaves. <laughs> you didn't say no religion. I didn't. I didn't. We're going to have to add another rule. Yeah. Did, did um, and and so uh, this the setting of the new version of the game is the same. Oh yes, it is. Okay. It's just that um, you know, I, a couple of things that I've changed since then is um, I, I got rid of the whole resource mechanic, uh, which was fiddly. You know, it was placing cubes and tokens and this kind of thing, and uh, I was play testing it, and it started to annoy me so much um, <laughs> that I started to react to it like a regular gamer would, and I thought, oh, the heck with this. Um, so instead, it's a mechanic of, well, this is the state of the game right now. I mean, we could be talking six months, six months or a year from now. It could be completely different yet again. But as it is now, um, each uh, group uh, or individual that you have represented in the game by a card in your power base, um, they have a certain amount of uh, influence, and you just, uh, well, I guess I can use the word, I, you, you tap them. Or exhaust them, or whatever. There's some there's some controversy as to whether um, Hasbro, that's Wizard of the, uh, no, who's the one who who, uh, who publishes Magic: The Gathering? Yeah, yeah, it's Wizards, right? Yeah, it's Wizards of the Coast. Whether they have actually copyrighted the term tap in order to use a card for its innate power or whatever. Right. So every, I don't every know. time every time I hear that, by the way, it's by people that would really wouldn't know. Yeah, right? I, like they've, and, they've and, seen something on Board Game Geek or something. That's right. And I really wouldn't know either. But um, anyway, I, I, I don't care. You, you can use a different word, exhaust and refresh or, you know, tap and untap, whichever. You, you get the idea. Yes. Um, so that uh, you build uh, you build a power base and uh, you have also have individuals um, who allow 
little exceptions to the rules, these kinds of things. And um, yeah, and there are different uh, victory conditions. There are, um, there's a, a set of 15 personalities in the game. Like the, the game is playable by up to five people and each one of them will be one personality. So there'll be 15 personalities and 10 of them will not be used in the game. Um, so you'll, and each one of them has a different set of victory conditions. So you've got your own victory conditions, but also during the game, there are hidden agenda cards that pop out of the deck that you can claim for yourself and keep hidden until the end of the game. So you can appear to be using one set of victory conditions, uh, but actually using another and people won't know until the end of the game. Yeah. And, uh, again, I was talking about crises. So you have, uh, you have the, um, you have the short-term incentive of garnering some victory points by helping to resolve a crisis. If you happen to be the last person to contribute um, influence, let's call it that, or power to a uh, to a crisis, then you get credit for resolving it, and you get to to keep the card. And each crisis card has a reward and a penalty. So the reward section is uh, the, the person who gets the reward is the person who, com who contributed the most towards resolving the crisis. That's not necessarily the last person, but the person who contributed most gets a reward. And that can be any number of, of things. Uh, I won't go into the details there. But the last person to contribute gets to keep the card itself. And if you keep the card itself, you stick it in your stash. And what you can do is you can play the card later for its penalty. And that may affect one person or it may affect more than one person. It depends how well you're reading the table. Uh, but that's a little sort of a take that mechanism that I've stuck into the game as well. Um, and also, uh, I mentioned the penalty section in a crisis card. If nobody contributes to helping resolve a crisis or if not enough people contribute to resolving a crisis, then there's a penalty. And that will affect one or more players on the board itself. And there are chronic crises too, which are especially severe ones. And if nobody helps to resolve them, then they just keep coming back. So you don't want to have too many of these things sitting on the table at the same time. So um, publisher, Brian, still working, still thinking about it? Going to wait till you're done? Uh, well, tentatively GMT. I have Good. shown this game in its earlier iterations to Gene and Luke, and uh, they they both liked it. Um, you know, Gene had some constructive situation uh, suggestions for um, you know putting a little bit more depth of play, and uh, of course we can write scenarios, you know, that that can set the game up in a certain way to deal with certain general political situations. Um, so there's a lot that could be done there. Um, but as of now, I'm still just kind of hammering away on the game's mechanics. And in my recollection, Brian, of the way you submit games is you're usually pretty close to 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 done. <laughs> you know, oh yeah. Relative relative to the scale of just started on a prototype and I'm finished. Yeah. You're much closer to finished than I think most game designers are when they submit the game to uh, to GMT. So. Yeah, I would imagine the GMT uh, as a publisher, or you know, practically any publisher you could care to name, gets enough stuff where someone, you know laid awake an extra hour at night and then scribbled a bunch of stuff down on a napkin, you know, uh, or, you know, people get as far as, you know, rewriting a set of rules and, uh, but they don't actually sit down and play the game yet, all this kind of thing. I am not 
really interested in putting in anything half-baked like that. Um, certainly, once I put a game in to a company, you know, if they have good, um, if they have, you know, if they have good suggestions, uh, then I'm, I'm more than prepared to listen to them, as long as I'm involved in it. You know, I that that did not happen with decision games. Um, well, I, I will say this: having had experiences both with GMT and Decision, that the models are very different. And yes. Decision relies very heavily on developers that are highly involved. And GMT allows the designer not only to run the, the entire process, but also finish on their deadline. And mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the problems that Decision faces that other companies like GMT don't is they have a timeline they have to meet. And so um, I think that those all create challenges and mean that we have to operate differently under their their models as designers. So um, I, I will say that the, the GMT experience is the best. And, um, <clears throat> so I, I, without making any judgments on decision, it's really hard to want to design anything for anyone other than GMT. Yeah, but that's that's true. And, um, uh, you know, it's my preference of the two. But, you know, GMT, there's only so much that they can that they can publish in a given year. And they have a huge pipeline. Um, and they don't run magazines, um, you know, which need to be stoked with uh, output the way Decision Games does. Now, Harold, uh, Howard, you, you've, um, you've uh, published with both uh, GMT and uh, it was your seventeen seventy seven game. Yes. With so I'm sure that your experience, you know, with decision games and its development process was probably quite different from mine. It, it, well, I don't I don't know that it was entirely different, but I, I I did one thing, and that is I actively lobbied to spend time with the developer and work with them through the process. Yeah. And and because of that. <clears throat> The, the number of things that changed that I was not aware of were highly limited. Uh, so I, learning from your experience, I was actively involved with Doc and uh, with the developer, and uh, and the product ended up being reflective of my views, with a few minor exceptions. Yeah. So so I'm I'm happy with that. The 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 most curious thing that happened on the decision games. Uh, Strategy and Tactics 316 is that they put they didn't put the name of the game on the cover of the magazine. They put in the name of another article, which oh, I thought, yeah. which I think was a mistake. But and I'm not I'm not going to ask anybody. I don't really care. But it just seems like a, a fairly silly mistake. And the the way those mistakes occur is when you don't involve the designer in mm-hmm. seeing a draft of the of the magazine. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I published six or eight things with decision games in the magazines, and I would have been very pleased to have been involved with uh, Doc and the developer who was involved, but uh, that did not come to be. I yeah. would submit it, and that was the end of it. Right. And and I learned a lesson, like I said, from, from your experience, and, and I appreciate your, your advice and counsel. And mm-hmm. Joe Miranda as well. I talked to him several times about how to, how to operate within the system. And so both of you gave me good counsel. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, Joe, Joe will not steer you wrong. Yeah, no doubt. He was, uh, he was wonderful. I, I enjoyed talking to him about these things. 
Yeah. Well, Brian, this uh, this is probably a good place to stop. Uh, we need to we need to get together more often. Um, always always love to talk to you and hear your stories, and uh, always a joy to hear what's going on uh, north of the border in the snow. <laughs> yes, that's me transmitting via my little igloo antenna. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, you, you know, I, I wish you and your you and your family uh, good health and good times through this challenging period. And um, thanks so much again for taking the time. Oh well, thank you, uh, thank you, Harold. It's uh, as I said, you know, we're doing okay. I'm I'm a little bit more concerned over, you know, other family members, but um, I think we're going to pull through. You know, Good. Uh, everybody has to pull together in this time. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. All right. And thanks. I don't think Appreciate that's a political it. statement. So I think I'm still within your pale. So far, so good, Brian. I haven't had to take any corrective action. <laughs> you take care. All right. Thanks, Harold. Bye.